It's Zusha over here. How are you? Doing very good, Zusha. I- I'll tell you what, I got. I-, I-, I have been just in heavy thought over this because in my 44 years of broadcasting, I have never talked about guns on the air. But yet, when, when I came across your book, American Gun, The True Story of the AR-15, I felt like it's time that the uneducated person starts talking because I think that's what's wrong here is that there are too many people like me out here that think they know but we need to learn and we need people like yourself to take that step forward and teach those of us that don't know. That's exactly right. It's it's really important. There's such a huge divide in this country over guns and it's really important that we all work from the same set of facts. I mean, that's one of the main reasons we wrote this book. I, I'm just amazed at how, how the, the, the language that you put in here is so one-on-one that I feel like that you sat down with us and said, can we just have a conversation? Because, I mean, you really make it very simple and, and very educational. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. So, so yeah, let's start where, you know, where we started. This gun, the AR-15, is one of the most hated and one of the most beloved in our country at the same time, right? There's, it's the most popular rifle in America. There's more than 20 million of them in civilian hands. It's also the gun that's been used in some of our most horrific mass shootings. And we wanted to know, how did we get here? What is the story? How did this gun become this, you know, symbol at the very heart of our bitter debate over firearms? You know, it's really interesting, Zusha, is the fact that I, what, the more and more I got into this book, the more and more that I found myself comparing it to the pit bull. So many people think the pit bull is the most evil dog on the planet, and yet my daughter's three pit bulls are the most lovable things I've ever had. And so I, so as I'm going through this book, that's what I'm thinking of. And I'm going, this, this is a game-changing book. Yeah, I think that's a, a great analogy. It's really interesting. A lot of people have never shot a gun, right? country, which is kind of remarkable. Back in the day, most, you know, a lot more people lived in rural areas. Guns were way more common. But now we live in a very polarized society. So we thought it was important to tell people very basically how this came to be. And the story really starts with the uh, the inventor, Eugene Stoner, this yeah. very fascinating character. He's a Marine veteran, a very gentle guy. Um, he, he never swears when he gets upset. He says, boy, that frosts me. <laughs> he, he refuses to spank his kids. Um, just a very shy guy. He loved to wear bow ties. And, and all he thought about was how to build a better mousetrap. But for him, the mousetrap was guns. And he had no formal training, no college education. But the ideas for the AR-15 came, really came to be in his garage in Los Angeles. Doesn't that blow you away that so many great ideas come from garages? I mean, look, look at the Apple computer. Oh, it's yeah, it's a classic American inventor story in some way, the AR-15. Here's this guy, no education, just dreaming he can make it big. And he comes up with the idea to use lightweight materials and came up with this very innovative gas system he stuck inside the gun. At the time he's designing um, guns, you know, rifles have been made out of heavy wooden yep. steel. They're incredibly bulky. He's like, they don't have to be that way. He could think outside the box. Well, JFK and Robert McNamara both, both endorsed this gun. And, and, and I, I thought, wow, here we go. This, it was you know, you're pretty much endorsed by, by the government. Let's, let's make this thing happen. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's so many interesting, well-known, his, famous historical people that play a huge role. But, you know, the first person that actually shot a prototype of this gun was John Wayne, the uh-huh. actor. He, was, <laughs> he, had stopped, he had stopped by Armalite, this little company Stoner worked for. 
to find out what they were doing, and they invited him to shoot the gun. They were all amazed. But certainly JFK and Robert McNamara were big fans of it. They thought it, you know, looked like this is what the future looks like. They had to battle with this, you know, an entire faction of the military that was very old school and really loved these big, heavy rifles that could fire accurately at long ranges. It was a very bitter feud between that faction and the old school faction with a lot of infighting. Quite mind-boggling to me, actually. In your heart, do you not find it to be very odd that a lot of the judges and the naysayers are those that have never been or served this nation, have never been to war, don't know what it's like to carry even a backpack of more than a mile? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really interesting point you make. I think it's, you know, one of the, the most important things is to talk to veterans who worked, you know, who used this gun during war, who used it as a tool, and then came home and often wanted to own the civilian version. And, and they often have a very good understanding of how this gun works. And in fact, that was how it initially started to take off. So, so what's interesting is that after Vietnam, the gun failed miserably in Vietnam. We go into this in the book, we interview Vietnam veterans, we went through thousands of pages of documents, but essentially the military changed the way that Stoner had designed the gun, they changed the propellant, they changed a bunch of things. And it resulted in the gun jamming and people dying on the fields of Vietnam. Yeah. It was terrible. Um, and that left a bitter taste in veterans' mouths. And so it didn't sell that well after the war. The civilian version didn't. But that really transformed after 9-11. A lot of guys went into the Middle East carrying this weapon, um, the, you know, the military version, full auto version. And when they came home, they really wanted to buy the semi-auto version yeah, of that. Yeah. You know, Zusha, the, the thing about it is is that I remember those head, those headlines about the Vietnam War. And and I would, sit oh. down, I, would, I would sit down with my father, and he was in World War II, and he would try to explain it to me. And I just I just didn't understand it because I was more interested in the lives that were lost because of, of something that went wrong than he was trying to explain to me that we need something that's going to go right. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, we interviewed one veteran, and, and this story is just tragic. He's there, you know, young Marine. He's, you know, in his bunker. He's he's getting fired upon. He's getting attacked, and his gun jams. Ugh. And he used this gun the only way that he can. He beats the enemy soldier with the butt of the rifle and then stabs him with the barrel. And it's just very gruesome, but it's also a very emblematic story of that time that the only thing that gun was good for for a while was hitting someone with. And there were numerous stories like this. These letters came back from Vietnam, parents worried about their kids. Yep. Congressional hearings were held. What's interesting is we looked through the documents and we found that the military knew there was a problem way before it hit the headlines. Stoner himself, the inventor, had called the military and told them not to change the ammunition but they did so anyway. Wow. Is it part of the reason why it was falling apart was basically because, as, as you describe in the book, it's Legos for adults? Uh, yeah, so that, that's a great nickname of the AR-15. There's a lot of funny nicknames that people have given it. They call it Legos for adults or Barbies for men. Yeah. And that's because it's like, it's like an erector set. It's like a, a Lego set. You can swap out all the parts. And that's one of the big appeals of the civilian version. People love to tinker with it, switch out the different parts. It's very easy to do. You can build them in your own basement, all that sort of thing. So now th this gun itself, I mean, it powers itself. Remember, I'm un uneducated. What does it mean that the AR-15 powers itself? Oh, so this is a fascinating thing. Let me tell you a little about Stoner and how he thought of design. So he loved efficiency. That was his favorite thing. And, and one of the stories that best exemplifies that is he only wore clip-on bow ties. 
So why is that? He thought that his regular tie would get caught in the machinery, oh and he thought it took too long to tie on a regular bow tie. So he wore <laughs> it. It's owed to efficiency. And his system that he devised to power this gun is as efficient as they come. He eliminated a lot of heavy metal parts that had been used in the past and just used hot, frictionless gas to move all the parts inside the gun. And it was really very ingenious and simple. He got a patent on it, and uh, people still use it today. Wow, wow. And what's really interesting, and listeners need to understand this, is that video game developers celebrate the AR-15 because of its mystique. Yeah, oh, this is a fascinating part of our research that we found. As you know, a lot of folks in the gun rights community will blame video games for violence in our country. But So we were surprised to find in internal documents, internal corporate documents, that some one of the biggest gun makers in America at the time, it was called Freedom Group, they were intentionally placing their firearms in video games, name brand guns. And that, um, you know, as we got to take a look at internal memos and emails, and that was really interesting for us to see. They're intentionally marketing to young folks, hoping that they'll see the brand name, and when they grow up, um, you know, they'll buy that kind of gun, kind of like Joe Camel. Uh, and and video games do play a big role. I mean, as you know, this latest generation, a lot of folks come into contact with guns for the first time in video games, you know, not like the older generations who are taught how to hunt by their dads or granddads. Uh, I'm one of those guys. I just got one of these meta quests, and and I was playing Zombie Land, and in my hand, <laughs> and I I had never in my entire life ever 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 held a gun. But in Zo- Zombie Land, it was a first experience in my life. It really affected me. Yeah, yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, so Call of Duty and all these first-person shooter games, that's really the first contact a lot of folks had with this, and that becomes a big marketing tool for gun makers. Uh, you know. One of the big questions we ask in our book is how did this gun go from being a relative niche product, kind of an outcast in the gun industry, to being the most popular rifle in America? You know, in 1994, there were 400,000 of these rifles in America. Today, there's more than 20 million. How did that happen? One of the things in video games and marketing, and, you know, another is that it has broad appeal because it's easy to shoot. Another thing, it's become a political symbol. And isn't it odd? Twenty, let, Let's say 20, 25 million. If that were television, it would be a gold mine. If that were radio, that would be something absolutely spectacular. But we, we have 25 million people with an AR-15, and people aren't celebrating that. What they're doing is they're hearing the bad stories. They're, they're living off the bad things, but they're not seeing other things. Right. Certainly there's, uh, there's, you know, if you talk to the 20 million people who own the rifle, they would tell you a story that's very different than, yep. you know, very small number that are using them for really nefarious ends. And what they would say is they own it because they like to shoot it. They think it's good for home defense. Um, you know, a lot of people use it for target shooting. It's just very easy and lightweight to shoot. Um, and they're just sort of everywhere. So they're easy to get. I mean, on the other hand, it's really important to understand the misuse of this gun, right? Um, to understand why it is used in so many mass shootings and to try to understand how we can stop mass shooters from getting their hands on this type of gun. When you release a book like this, does does this pull you into some of these investigations and these researchers? Because, and the reason why is because, I mean, you have put so much love and passion into bringing this book forward that, that I, if I were somebody that was investigating the reason why, I would have to call you in just to ask you, okay, what's going on here? What am I missing? 
yeah, we really hope that people read this book and try to understand what the real problem is. Like, so let me just lay out, you know, we don't have all the solutions, right? but we, we try to understand what the problem is. And this is the problem. There are, like we said, more than 20 million of these guns in the country. And most of those people are not the problem. They have their guns locked up in their safe. They use them responsibly. But there are very few people who go out there and use these to kill a lot of people in very horrific mass shootings. So we have to ask ourselves the question, how do we keep AR-15s out of those people's hands? And what's interesting from covering these mass shootings, which I do very frequently, is every time one of these happens, there's a ton of warning signs. It's never a surprise that this person has gone and shot a bunch of people. So we need to pay attention to those warning signs, number one. Well, what, what's fascinating about your book, and, and, and readers are, are going to really dig into this, is that you didn't fear going out there to talk to witnesses, doctors, families who've lost members. I mean, you include everybody in this entire layout. Yeah, that's that's really true. I mean, we wanted to talk to, to really get to know this rifle and its history. We talked to everyone, the inventor's family. We were the first people to really have the opportunity to talk with the inventor's family, spoke with veterans, spoke with gun industry executives, politicians, gun owners. And as you said, we really wanted to highlight the stories of folks who survived the wounds from these mass shootings. We, we talked with one woman who survived the San Bernardino shooting. She's gone through over 60 surgeries having to relearn to walk, having to relearn to use her hand. Uh, it's just a really a story of perseverance, but really helps readers understand what it takes to get through those injuries. Don't you think that what we need to do that when it gets, I mean, I was going to say when, when it gets into politics. No, it's in politics all the time. But when they really start bringing it to the front page of the newspaper and the 5 p.m. news, that we need to start doing some research, such as picking up your book, American Gun, The True Story of the AR-15, so that we understand why there are agreements and disagreements. Yeah, we really need to understand this history before we start putting forth policy solutions. We need to understand how we got here. We under need to understand why people love this gun. We need to understand why it's misused. We need to understand why it was invented. And and I think if people understand those things, we can have a much more productive conversation. I, I think there's a deeper purpose behind these manufacturers. It's not just to put the, you know, hey, we got to get our sales up, go out there and sell more AR-15s. I think what they're doing is they, they, there's, a, there's a deeper, you know, place where they're going like, hey, you have the right to have this. If I stop making this, you, we've interfered with your right to have this gun. Well, absolutely. That's one of the biggest reasons that sales jump of the AR-15 is because it has become a symbol of Second Amendment rights. We detail a really, we, we went back and talked to everyone, let me tell you. So in the, in the 1990s, we talked to this guy who owned an AR-15 up in the Washington area. And he doesn't think anything of it. He's a veteran. He likes his gun. He likes taking it out to the range. But as soon as Congress comes and says, we want to ban that gun, this is, happens in 94, to him, his gun just transforms into a symbol yeah. of Second Amendment rights. He's like, hell no, you're not going to mess with me. You know, he's like, I'm not causing a problem. It's not me that's murdering a bunch of people in cities. And at that moment, the AR-15 becomes a political symbol, and that's very powerful. So every time there's a Democratic... Um, presidential nominee that's running that seems like they might win, sales go up yep. because people feel they may restrict AR-15s. Every time there's a mass shooting and a Democrat calls for uh, you know an assault weapons ban, sales go up. So it's become a political symbol. What, what you don't know about me, Zusha, is that I'm the guy here in the Southeast that does all the gun show commercials. I have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm just reading a bunch <laughs> of words. But I'll tell you, that, that after reading this book, I really do have a better view. I really do. I mean, but I mean, who's the guy who's using his voice? I don't know. But he's getting better. He's, he's trying to understand. <laughs> 
Oh, I really, I really appreciate your interest and the fact that you, you're now, you know, spreading that word to others. I, I do think it's really important to know the story of this gun. And others. So does that, so that leads me to this question then. Will we learn about other rifles? I mean, because we don't know about the 22, the 3030, the things that my father used to use when they went deer hunting. I don't know. I, I know nothing about those books. It's, it's like even in Cody, Wyoming, they have the largest collection of Winchester rifles. Well, the only right. reason why we love that is because of Western movies. Right, right. Yeah, so popular culture plays a big deal in what guns become interesting to us and so forth. And I think that right now, no gun is more interesting and popular than the AR-15 and no more, no symbolic. It's interesting, you go to like marches, gun control mar marches, people carrying, you know, symbol of the AR-15 crossed out. You go to gun rights marches, people are carrying symbols of <laughs> AR-15 saying, come and take it. But you don't see people carrying uh, flags waving Winchesters, right? Or you don't see like it's 22s. And then the reason is because it just is not a cultural chew toy in the way that the AR-15 is. But it is important to note before we get out of here, right, is that most murders and, and suicides are carried out with handguns in this country. Yep. Yep. Um, but the fact is that these guns are used uh, more often in mass shootings, which cause a lot of public fear and have a greater impact because of that. People are going to want to know more information. I realize we have the book, but we are that generation that has got to find their nose somewhere on a, on a digital device. Where can they go to find out more about you and, and everything that you're doing? Yeah, you can absolutely read all my stories at the Wall Street Journal. That's my day job. I'm a Wall Street Journal reporter. I write about guns in this country. I write about cops. I write about crime. And that's really how this uh, book came to be. And please uh, go buy the book, go download the book, go listen yeah. to the book. We have a great guy who's reading it. Not as good as you, Not the voice not quite as good as you, but but still pretty good. Well, I am no longer a gun virgin. I mean, I really, I mean, I, I, I feared <laughs> having this conversation, but once again, you, you spoke just like the book does. You make me want to learn more about what we're judging. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, you be brilliant today, okay? All right, you too. Bye-bye.